we rejoice that you have called us a particular people. You have called us to be your children. And Lord, we thank you that you haven't just called us here, those who are born again, but Lord, you have called for yourself a people from every tribe and tongue and nation. Lord, across the ages. And so, Lord, we stand together with the saints of old and with the saints who are yet to come. And Lord, we, we pray, Lord, that, that you would unite us all in you. Lord, you tell us to rejoice with those who are rejoicing and to weep with those who are weeping. And so, Lord, we have so much to rejoice over. We think about new life as we, we think about new love, as we think about the blessings of fellowship with you and with each other. Lord, we ought to be people who are supremely thankful, and Lord, we are thankful, but Lord, I pray that you would work thanksgiving in our hearts. Lord, I pray that as, as we gather here together in peace, especially peace with you, but Lord, also in peace with each other. And Lord, we, we live in a country where we have freedom of worship. And so, Lord, we thank you for that freedom. But Lord, so often our freedom just becomes apathy as we hide the lamp under a bushel and don't proclaim the gospel through word and deed. Lord, I pray that you would help us to remember that we will give an account for the freedom that we have, that you will cause us, Lord, to just be so enamored with you that we can't help but, but sing your praises. And Lord, that others would see the difference that you're making in our lives and that they too would be drawn to you as their Lord and Savior. And Lord, also that our lives and our words would be a testimony against those who reject you. So Father, we, we do pray for churches in this city where your gospel is proclaimed, that you would cause them to continue to stand firm, that you would cause us to continue to stand firm. We pray, Lord, for churches where your word has become watered down or even tainted with, with something that, that is not water but, Lord, can only defile. I pray, Father, that you would bring repentance. Lord, we stand with our brothers and sisters around the world who are suffering horrific persecution. Lord, we think about the situation in, in Pakistan, in India, in Honduras, in Mexico, and so many countries, Lord, where, where to, to stand up for you could easily lead to torture and death. Lord, we want to pray for the Jutras family serving in Poland that you would cause them to remain faithful in the midst of, of a country that is steeped in, in Roman Catholic tradition and, and just has fallen away from, from the truth of the gospel. We pray, Father, that you would help them to be a beacon of light in that country. Lord, we also want to uh, bring the situation in Egypt before you as with the, the 
um, deposement of, of President Morsi, Lord, as, the, as this is being used as an opportunity for Muslims to persecute Christian churches. We pray, Father, for peace in that country. We pray that you would raise up a leader who would establish peace and, and give Christians an opportunity to be able to worship freely without fear of, of assault. And Lord, as we look at the situation in North Africa, we it's, it's, it's disconcerting, but we know, Lord, that you raise up leaders and you tear them down. So, Father, we do pray that you would, would bring peace and stability in that region and let the gospel be proclaimed powerfully. But, Lord, we know that it is being proclaimed powerfully even, even in the midst of that. Despite that, Lord, the gospel is being proclaimed and people are coming to salvation in Christ. And we pray, Father, that that would continue. Lord Jesus, you said you were building your church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So Lord, help your church to assail the gates of hell to set many captives free for your glory. Lord, we pray for those here who are suffering our midst. We think of, of Bill Milliken and Jane. We thank you that they're here with us. We think of Caleb. We think, Lord, of... Helen Higgins, who can't be here, and the Knapps, and Adelia, who would love to be here, of, of Carnes and Vi White. We pray, Father, that, that you would help us to be faithful to pray for them, and as we're able to visit them, and to encourage them with the gospel, to be your hands and your feet for your glory and for their uplifting. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And now I want to welcome... Um, my dear friend and brother, Jonathan Sign, he's going to come and share with us from Psalm 73. Brother, it's a delight to have you here with us, especially think about two years ago, humanly speaking, it didn't look like that was going to happen. So <laughs> we're just very thankful, brother, and Thanks. pray that God's would bless you. Well, this is a... Uh... This is quite the pulpit, John. Um, at, at my church building, we have one about half the size, and it has glass on the front and the side, so my people can see my knees knocking. So you'll be spared from that um, this morning. <laughs> um, I'll be quite honest with you. This is the third week out of the, the, the pulpit of my church family, and I do miss um, my people very much uh, today. But at the same time, I consider it a great joy to meet with other brothers and sisters in the Lord and to worship and to fellowship um, with you. I often find it very neat to kind of look back on on life and to see how God orchestrates things. God talked about, you know, or John talked about God's sovereignty and how he's weaving all things together. And so I'm, I never cease to be amazed at how God puts certain people in our lives that and, and develops relationships that last for a long time. So I just thank the Lord for um, bringing John into uh, my path as well and to um, begin that relationship and uh, getting to know Jane as well. I, you need to know that you're in very good hands. Um, your, your pastor here loves the Lord, loves the Word of God, um, and he loves his people. So um, I just I, I want to commend you and, and your church for your pastor there. I do consider it a great privilege to be able to come and to stand before you to, to declare God's word to you. It is not a, a duty that I take lightly, um, but I, I'm just amazed at how God works and how he, he, in his sovereignty, also has allowed me this great opportunity uh, to preach God's word. Um, I, I love a service that is immersed in prayer, uh, and we've 
been into prayer uh, several times, and, and I hope you don't mind if uh, we pray even now, even more specifically for the ministry of the Word this morning. So please join me in prayer. Father, it is a joy and it is a great privilege that we have the freedoms to come together and to to sit under the Word of God, the, the words that without which we would be completely lost and helpless in this life. And so I thank you um, for that. I thank you that you have used, um, by way of your Holy Spirit, to um, supernaturally convey and preserve um, your Word. And so I pray even now for the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the one who opens eyes to the truths of your Word, the one who to convicts and challenges and empowers us. And so we pray exactly that your Holy Spirit would come and move among us and give us the eyes to see and the conviction that is necessary, the challenge and the comfort that comes only by the Holy Spirit of God. And, and we don't want to take any of the credit, and we just want to give you all the glory for our time here this morning. In the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. So I'm, I'm not the same man I was two years ago. Um, if you know me, you might point out maybe a few gray hairs, uh, a few more pounds or wrinkles perhaps, but even more significant is what God has taught me over the same period of time. Uh, many people learn things about God by reading through the intellect, and these are all very important things, but there's something very powerful and very tangible when you experience them as well, when you, when you live through what you know of God and his word. You may have heard that a pastor sometimes talk about the experience of preaching a sermon, and sometimes God moves very powerfully and specifically in the life of the preacher before he delivers the message. Uh, in many ways, a biblical text and its message become part of the preacher. And for me, there is a particular passage that has become the perfect storm, if you will. Um, I have the privilege of uh, preaching through the Psalms over the summer months, over the past couple of years. And what I appreciate about the Psalms is that they're very honest. Right? The, the writers don't hold back their doubts, their fears, their anger, their praise. They seemingly wear their heart on their sleeve. They're down to earth. They are Wednesday passages, if you know what I mean. Uh, we are familiar with the, the more lofty scriptures uh, like Ephesians 1, and Paul opens up his letter to the Ephesians by stating that Christians are blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, chosen by God before the foundation of the world. And he goes on to say that God has made us alive in Christ and seated us with him in heavenly places. And, we're, and we read this stuff, and our, and our minds stutter a little bit when we consider the grandeur and the, the significance of, for the Christian in these passages. But the Psalms, particularly Psalm 73, is tangible. The author has lived this one, and the reader, too, as you read it, you can feel it almost. You can identify with it. So I'm going to ask you now, if you have your Bibles, and, and I hope you do, to turn to Psalm 73. Psalm chapter 73, if you're not familiar with the Bible, if you just kind of open it up in the middle, the Psalms are there and you can kind of uh, negotiate your way from there. Psalm 73, and I'd like to read the text as we uh, get underway. Psalm 73 is a psalm of Asaph. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled and my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. 
for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their, their eyes swell out with fatness and their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, as people turn back to them and find no fault to them, and, and, and they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes. O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you, but, but for me... It is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. And that is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Now, I'm not sure if you've had any time to spend in this passage before. There are some familiar verses in there. But what I'd like for us to do this morning is to walk with Asaph just for a little bit and, and to see what he went through. And then I want to share how, how my life intersects with this passage, with Asaph, and, and why this passage has become so meaningful to me. But at the outset, you're going to notice that this is a psalm of Asaph. There are a number of psalms that are attributed to him. Asaph was a Levite musician appointed by David to serve in the tabernacle. 1 Corinthians 6 um, provides us with some information when it's recorded that these are the men whom David put in charge of the service of song in the house of the Lord after the ark rested there. They ministered with song before the tabernacle of the tent of meeting until Solomon built the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, and they performed their service according to their order. So before Solomon had the temple built, this grand um, structure that God had appointed for him to do, the nation of Israel, they would meet, they would worship, and they would sacrifice to God and the tabernacle. And Asaph was a leader within the tabernacle as the musician. The first point I want to look at is, well, where are you looking? Where are you looking? Because we're going to notice that in verses 1 to 3, the object of Asaph's focus subtly shifts from God in verse 1 to himself in verse 2 and to others in verse 3. I don't know if you caught that as I read it, but watch it here. Asaph says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, 
My feet had almost stumbled and my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. God is good to his people, and I became envious when I looked at them. And this pattern is also going to play out through the rest of the chapter. Asaph is going to begin with this truth concerning God. He's going to elaborate on this struggle when he looks around at others. And he's going to conclude by returning his focus back to God. And, and several of the Psalms, if you're familiar with them, go like that, where the, there's this topic introduced, this struggle, the psalmist works it all out, and then he concludes that God is good. But Asaph here, he begins with a truth statement. Verse 1 is this truth statement. He says that God is good to his people, to those who are pure in heart. And so as a leader in the tabernacle of God, Asaph would be well acquainted with the law of God. He would have been immersed in, in the teachings. Asaph would lead the people in singing these great truths. And so he didn't pick this statement out of the air. It was his declaration. It was, it was embedded within him. He knew this cognitively. And yet you take a quick peek at verse 2 and, and, and the first words, you realize, you know what, there's more to the story than, than just this statement that he's making. But consider for a moment, plug it away. As we look at the rest of this passage, how important it becomes to have a proper theological statement to refer to. Okay, so this isn't just for seminary students, right? Truly, everyone has a view of God. Even if you are a, an atheist, you have a theology, you have a view of God, and that would be that he doesn't exist. But either way, you have a, you have a theology. And so for Asaph and many others, every circumstance in life is going to cause you to consider, is God really good? Is he really? Because this is what's going to be particularly tested through the life of Asaph. And so what Asaph does here is what Martin Lloyd refers to as, as Lloyd-Jones talked, he refers to talking or preaching to yourself. Pastor John already talked about how we need, be still my soul. We preach to ourselves the truths of word of God. So when, when emotions and experiences and the enemy begin to challenge some of the truths you've learned, you are in peril if you listen to that rather than talking and speaking these great truths to yourself. And so Asaph, he begins with an understanding that God is good to his people in an attempt to remind himself of their very fact. Because if he was trying to understand the character of God based solely on his circumstances and not what he was taught, he might conclude very wrongly. But as for me, he says, my feet had almost stumbled and my steps had nearly slipped. There are two very key words there, and I don't know if you caught them. He says, my feet had almost stumbled and my feet had nearly slipped. And why did this happen? For Asaph, what went wrong? Verse 3 tells us that he was overcome with envy. He saw the prosperity of the wicked. He saw the prosperity of the wicked. He took his eyes off of God, who was good to his people, and he began to look around at everybody else. And yet we all know what this is like, right? How often do we look at the, the houses, the, the cars, the, the jobs, even the families around us that seem to have it all together, and we imagine. We imagine what it would be like if we just had a, a bit bigger house or a newer car or even this, this family, this model family of the, the people across the street. 
What went wrong with Asaph? What, what goes wrong for us as we look around? We look around and compare ourselves with our neighbors and our co-workers, and I, and I can't help but wonder how much trouble would be avoided if we stopped looking around and looked to our great God. So Asaph, he, he's begun with this true statement that God is good to his people, and, and then he begins to let us look in on, on his struggle. And in his doubt, he looks around at everyone and asks the question, God, is this really true? Is this really true? Because, you know, I don't know. I had to look around, and I'm I'm having a bit of a tough time with this one. The second point is distorted experience. It seems that, you know, Asaph is just having a rough go at life. Perhaps he's had a really bad day. I don't know. But what happens here is he launches into a bit of a pity party, right? Anybody throw one of those for yourself? I'm pretty good at them from time to time. Throw myself a little pity party. We, you know, we start saying things like, you know, I'm always sick on the holidays. Or why does my boss always, why doesn't anything ever go my way? Right? You get the idea. And so I think as, as we recount Asaph's experience here, we're, we're going to see that when we get caught up in such thinking, thinking, our accounts become distorted. We don't see things clearly. And with some of the, intru- the issues that he introduces, there, there are some elements of truth. And yet some distortions that come right alongside. Let's take a brief look at Asaph's distorted experience. According to verse 4, the wicked experience no pain in their lifetime. None. Their bodies resemble their wealth and gluttonous eating. In other words, they don't needlessly suffer because of a lack of food or other resources. In verse 5, they don't experience trouble. As a result, verse 6 tells us the wicked are proud of their self-sufficiency. In fact, they wear a pride as a necklace, the psalmist says. And because of their wealth and power, they exploit the weak in any manner they choose. Verse 7, they are able to gorge themselves to the point where their eyes swell out with fatness. Now, that's a pleasant image. (laughs) And this causes their hearts to overflow with follies. They have no cares. They're They're not dependent on anybody. They live as they please, they exploit others, and this leads them to live non-moral lives, right? In verse 8, they act and speak as if the world revolves around them and is all for them. And yet it gets more interesting. In verse 9, verse 9, Asaph says that they go so far as to direct their voice against the God of heaven and continue to set themselves above above others. You can almost... Feel the tension and the outrage going on in Asaph's mind. How dare they? God, God, can't you see? Why do you stand by and do nothing? And it gets worse. Verse 11, the wicked subscribe to a theology of an irrelevant God. Right? So look, how can God know? Is there any knowledge in the Most High? They seem, the wicked seem to get away with their wickedness and they boast about it. Charles Spurgeon, he adds that they flatter themselves and their oppressions and persecutions are unobserved of heaven. If there be a God, is he just too much occupied with other matters to know what is going on upon the world? So that's sort of what's going on here. And this must be the tension within Asaph. Not only are the wicked prospering, but they mock you, God. They say that you either don't care, you're unable to intervene, and possibly that their prosperity comes from their very wickedness. I don't get it. 
And in verse 12, he summarizes these observations by saying, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. But Asaph sinks to even greater depths. In verse 13, he concludes, All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. He comes to the point where he questions if this is even all worth it. But let's not be too hard on Asaph here. Because haven't we all, if we're honest, we've taken a look around, right? And we've been like, man, you know, they're having lots of fun. They don't have to worry over living a moral life. They can party hard and not worry about their testimony of Christ. You know, or, or my only opportunity to ski is on Sunday mornings. All my friends are going skiing or, or the group bike ride or the boating club. I don't know what matches your context here, but, um, you know, maybe my neighbor, you know, he's sleeping around and he's cheating on his wife and he doesn't seem to have a care in the world. He's doing quite well in business. He he doesn't concern himself about loving his wife as Christ loved the church. And did I mention he just got this great new boat? What, what, what am I doing? Now, obviously, I overstate the case here, but there may be times when we ask the question, why everyone else is doing so well, and I'm having a really tough go at it, is it all worth it? Is this all in vain? Again, Charles Spurgeon, he writes regarding Asaph, he says, Poor Asaph, he questions the value of holiness when its wages are paid in the coin of affliction. With no effect, he has been sincere. No advantage has come to him through his purity, for the filthy-hearted are exalted and fed on the fat of the land. Thus foolishly will the wisest of men argue when faith is napping. When faith is napping. But I love the insight of Asaph in verse 15. Though it's quite fine to wrestle through very significant questions, he realizes that to broadcast these doubts would be disastrous. Think of it this way. Asaph was the leader of the music. right? Perhaps Asaph is leading his family in devotions, and, or maybe he's mentoring a couple of young guys, and they sit down for the weekly meeting and they pray, and then he says something to the effect of, you know, the Bible says that God is good to his people, but that, that's not what I'm seeing. You know, I've taken a look around, and, and things aren't as they should be. You see it too. I know you do. Your ungodly neighbors and co-workers, they're doing pretty good, aren't they? You know what I'm thinking? I'm thinking this is all in vain, and you know, I've kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence, and I can't harmonize what I've been taught to believe with what I'm seeing. Right, so what would be the result of this foolish outburst? Because the people that you, that you teach and, and you're mentoring, they need to know that you believe what you're teaching them. This, come, this hits home with me. When, when I preach, if I don't believe when I'm preaching, I'm a hypocrite. And so week after week, I'm forced to wrestle with the text until I'm comfortable with what it's saying. And, and if I myself am willing to apply it to my own life, and that's not always easy, but it's where I land every week because it's the Word of God. And Asaph, he refused to infect the people of God with his doubt and despair. And by writing this psalm, Asaph is going to ultimately share his, his despair with future generations, but only after he too had wrestled with it. And he landed on, on his on faith, on belief. For us, as we continue to pursue God through his word, we will find that our first conclusions regarding our problems are not always our best. 
And we need to continue to pursue God through his word. But Asaph here, he's a good example of honesty in his times of doubt. It's not wrong to grapple with a difficult truth from God's word, but we must not be content to stay there. We must be willing to seek the wisdom from God through prayer and through his word, and we must exercise faith. And this is precisely what Asaph did. Let's consider thirdly uh, this point, realignment. Look at verses 16 and 17. Asaph doesn't give up. When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. He's going after this. He's going to pursue it. And how, did, how does he pursue it? It says he went into the sanctuary of God. Well, what does he mean by that? Well, I, I believe that he encountered the worship of God's people and was encouraged through the, the singing of the people, the teaching of the law of God, and the fellowship of God's people. Asaph was a leader among God's people, and the gathering for worship is going to be a priority for him. And when God's people gather for worship, they sing of their great salvation from their sin, the glories of Calvary. We consider our state apart from God, and we erupt with praise for our salvation. And I believe it was then that Asaph was reminded that in eternity, it is only those who are God's people, those who have kept themselves pure, that would ultimately prosper. So working this out, he says in verse 18 that the wicked are not well off. They are in slippery places. God will make them fall to ruin. They are destroyed in a moment and swept away utterly by terrors. Their prosperity is fleeting. We're familiar with James chapter 1 when, when he says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So in the sanctuary, Asaph came to see everything from God's perspective rather than his own limited and sinful observations. He began to see things in light of eternity. All the prosperity of the wicked that he was envious of would disappear as if a dream. And they would be held accountable for the rejection of their maker and punished for all of eternity. One commentator noted that Asaph's experience should lead us to understand that the righteous on his worst day is far better off than the unrighteous on his best day. So Asaph, he, he reels a bit. He does some soul searching in verses 21 and 22. I think he falls under God's conviction and is humbled. Because when we are consumed with envy and covetousness, we don't glorify God. We are made in the image of God and we are created to give him honor and praise. And, and when we, we do not, we are, he says, we are brutish and ignorant. Right? We, are, we are merely animals who strive to satisfy our own appetites. So at this moment, Asaph, he comes crawling out of this pit of despair. And I love the, verse, the first word of verse 23. Nevertheless, God, I, I know, I took my eyes off of you and I began to look around. I, I began to question your goodness to your people. I, I thought my pursuit of holiness was in vain. My feet almost stumbled. My feet nearly slipped. Nevertheless, praise God for nevertheless. Asaph says, I am continually with you. And the next word, what is it? 
You. You is the subject of the next phrase. You hold my right hand. I almost stumbled and slipped, but you hold my right hand. You kept me from falling away, and you continue to guide me with counsel, and in the future, you will receive me to glory. Our salvation and our perseverance are not ours to claim. God is the one who reaches down and he saves us, and God is the one who secures us until the very end. This realization must have brought Asaph to his knees and to worship his God, because in light of all these great and wonderful truths, he says in verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. In the final analysis, the only thing that really matters for us is God. He's all we have. He's all we need. He sustains us here, and afterward, he will receive us into glory. Now, verses 25 and 26 have become special to me. I was meditating on verse 26 here on July 23rd, 2011. Does that mean anything to anybody else here? And what you need to know is that the days and the weeks and leading up to the night that I was meditating on this text, I found myself sort of in the same mind that Asaph was in the opening verses of the chapter. Because, you know, even in ministry, you can struggle with envy. Um, ministry can be difficult, and, and sometimes it may seem more of a burden than a privilege. And this is when we lose perspective, when faith is napping, as Spurgeon says. And so sinfully, I began to envy those that enjoy their weekends with family and recreation while I spend many of my Saturdays, you know, finishing up my sermons. I began to miss the days when I had an ordinary job, you know, when you could check out at the end of the day. Anybody remember those punch clocks where you just kind of click the thing and you're done and you can walk away from your work and then not worry about it until the next time you punch in? Though I never began to question if holiness and following after Christ was worth it, I began to see a seed of regret in ministry. And at this time, God had also providentially, he brought an illness into my life. Um, Not coincidence, but providence. Unbeknownst to me, we had traveled back east to visit a a dying grandmother. And um, I was bitten by a tick in the backyard of the home that I grew up in. And so within weeks, I found my energy levels were dropping dramatically. My body, my whole body ached from head to toe. A rash had begun to develop on my body. And, and what we would end up finding out was that that little bug had, had given me Lyme disease. Right? But we didn't realize this until much, much later. Uh, nonetheless, we had a family reunion to attend to up above 70 Mile House there in BC. And, and that week was just terrible. I was lying on a softball to relieve some of the muscle pain that I was experiencing, and I slept all the time. It wasn't a pleasant vacation. <laughs> but we returned to Squamish, and I began to resume some of my responsibilities in the office, and day after day, I, I awoke with this eager anticipation that my strength was going to be restored. Um, I pleaded with God for healing, and I, and I was wrestling, knowing that God teaches us things in adversity, and, and I prayed, you know, Show me what you want to teach me, and then you can take this away, right? Um, So I felt like Jacob a little bit wrestling with the angel of the Lord, but I felt as though God wanted to really press in on this one. God wanted to bring me to the place where I can say that, that he alone is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. God is a way of stripping away peripheral things 
so that we can gaze on him and trust him completely. But that night, um, God impressed upon me this thought. He says, you know, what if you never regain your energy and your strength? And for me, that's, that's a pretty heavy question. Will you only trust me in your health? When you have these other things that bring you joy, what if it's only me that's left when I'm done? Will you despair or will you rejoice? My wife, Chris, and I talked that night for a bit about the Apostle Paul. You know, where else do you go when you think of adversity in your life and try to seek some answers? You look to the Apostle Paul. You couldn't keep him down. You could reprimand him, beat him, imprisonment, imprison him. It didn't matter. He had joy, and he preached the gospel. And we began to talk about the what-ifs. You know, Paul suffered. What if, what if I was called to suffer for Christ in a very significant manner? Because as Christians, we can read the Bible and we can nod our heads when it says that we're called to carry a cross and to suffer for him, but we think it's mostly for the other people. What if it's me? What if, what, if, what if I can't exercise anymore? Right? For me, my love is bicycling. So what if God took that away? And it's easy for us to respond and say, well, I'm not Paul. But we can't get out that easy because Paul would be the first to tell you that he wasn't a super spiritual person. He was just a weak person that God used in a mighty way. And so after Chris went to bed that night, I, I was still working on this sermon and the text, and I began to, to contemplate Asaph's words, my flesh and my heart may fail, and, and I kid you not, I began to breathe intentionally and reflect that each breath was because of God's grace. Right? He doesn't owe us anything, and every time we're able to breathe, that, that's by God's grace. I began to listen to my heartbeat and realize, you know, at any moment, God could decide that it was time for it to stop working. In fact, I was going to take it a bit further and share that with, with my people. You know, just think about that for a minute. Your heart can stop at any time, you know, when, when God determines it. And Little did I know what the rest of my night and my morning would, like because, would be like because my, my heart actually did begin to fail. Um, I found myself on the bathroom floor much that night fighting to stay conscious. Eventually, I was able to wake, wake my wife, Chris, to take me to the hospital. We didn't call an ambulance because we didn't want to traumatize our kids. Um, but that she, she drove me there, and we had asked friends to come and watch after the kids. And so suddenly I was forced to come head-to-head -head with, with Asaph's struggle here. Is God truly the strength of my heart and my portion forever? At that moment, I was thinking, could I testify to him in my dying? And if I did live, I wasn't sure at that point, would I, would I trust and praise him if I was forced to live a very different life than, than I had known? Because before I know it, I was in an emergency and a whole lot of people around me trying to stabilize my heart. And at one point, I, I faded, and I did. I, I thought it was the end. I was fading, and um, strangely enough, I did begin to see things as if a dream, but unfortunately, I was unable to recall these visions and write a book and make lots of money. So um, it is what it is. But by God's grace, I did one of those, I don't know if you've seen it in the TV shows, I, I fought it and I, straight, I stood straight up in, in the bed as everybody's kind of huddled around me and they were looking at me like, whoa, we almost lost him and is he okay kind of thing. And so by various means, the doctors were able to stabilize my heart and I got my first helicopter ride. <laughs> I might have preferred it under different circumstances. In fact, I was conscious at the time and I asked the guys flying, hey, can you give me a ride back if I make it through this thing? But all joking aside, I, I would love to be able to say that, you know, without hesitation, I trusted God completely. 
But I'll be honest, it took some time while I was lying in ICU at St. Paul's to come to grips with it. And God had broken me so that he could teach me. Right? At that time, I came across a quote from the author Paul Tripp. Uh, it said something like this. He said, God will take you where you did not want to go in order to produce in you what you could not achieve on your own. Hospital for 11 days? That's not me. Last place I'd choose to be. But did I learn some lessons that I would not learn elsewhere? Absolutely. I've learned about suffering. You know, normally I'm, I'm the one on the other end of the equation here. I might meet with other people that, that suffer so that I can remind them of the truth of God's word and pray with people. What I, what I knew of suffering was true, but now I had the opportunity to live it as well. Now I could identify with it. I learned about weakness because one of my lifelong struggles seems to be with self-sufficiency. Right? I'm prone to lean on my abilities and my competencies before turning to the Lord. He clearly taught me <laughs> that I'm weak he doesn't need me, and yet he can do amazing things despite me. The chorus to a casting crown song goes like this. I don't know if you're familiar. It goes, because when I'm weak, you make me strong. When I'm blind, you shine your light on me. Because I'll never get by living on my own ability. How, how refreshing to know you don't need me. How amazing to find that you want me. So I'll stand on your truth and I'll fight with your strength until you bring the victory by the power of Christ in me. So really, none of this is about me. And I hope you don't walk away with that. It's about him. And I've merely found out what many others, perhaps even some of you, have gone through and have concluded. Because I've watched many people suffering and I've heard their heart, if not their words. And it's the same place where Asaph lands, that God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. These are powerful statements that we all need to wrestle with. Can you honestly declare the same things as Asaph here? Is God the strength of your heart and your portion forever? Is there anything that rivals your desire for God? Because think hard on this. If, if God is gracious to you, he will strip away the competition. And if not, he might just let you walk the road of the wicked. Asaph reiterates and he summarizes in verse 27 and 28, those prospering wicked, they will perish. And then he makes it personal again. Again, he says, but for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I might tell of all your works. Is it good for you to be near God? Have you made the Lord your refuge? The good news is that we can be near to God. Sin does not have to separate us. A provision was made in the person of Jesus Christ who died for sinners so that we can be reconciled or made right with a holy God. You might be familiar that when Jesus died, the curtain of the Holy of Holies was ripped, ripped in half, and it signified that we have permanent access to our great God. If we repent of our sin and trust this Jesus, we can enjoy this tremendous privilege for all of eternity. We can be near to God. Let's not wrongly believe that this life is all there is, because God has determined a day 
when he will judge the world in righteousness. And though you may suffer while others prosper, remember that this life is not the end. We were not created to amass great wealth and to be immersed in our comfort. We were created for another world, an eternal one. C.S. Lewis wrote that if you aim at heaven, you will get earth thrown in. But you aim at earth and you get neither. Let's continue to pursue after God and his ways so that we will not become sidetracked. May every circumstance in our lives cause us to conclude that God is the strength of our hearts and our portion forever in the good times and in the bad times as well. Let's pray. Father, as, as Christians, we often wrestle with um, how, how the wicked prosper. You know, why, why do we have such a rough go of it? And, and, we, and we wrestle with this when faith is napping because we know that the Lord Jesus himself suffered and was persecuted why would we expect any different treatment? And yet we know that this present life is but a drop in a bucket compared to eternity. And so we, we rejoice and we marvel that from eternity past, you have called us to be your children and to, to, to be received up into glory forevermore. And Father, for those who have been wrapped up in this world, I pray that you would um, bring conviction, that you would bring spirit to bear on that and that you would remind them that that we were created to serve a holy god and to give him glory and not our not ourselves